0: Well, good morning. Uh, We are glad that you are here. And uh, for those of you guys that are fans of the Arizona Cardinals, we've been liberated from the football season. Uh, So we no longer have to watch football anymore. Uh, By the Lord's mercy for that. Uh, But we are so glad uh, that you are here to worship with us. My name is Randy. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Christ Bible Church, and we're so pleased to have you with us as we continue to work through the book of John. Two things I'd like to uh, point out. One, uh, we have scripture journals in the back through the book of John, so if you uh, would like to be taking notes, uh, we have uh, a book that's the text of John on one page and a blank page on the other that we use uh, throughout the whole sermon series. We're now just a little bit over halfway through the book of John, uh, and so there's a few more of those available in the back if you would like to use one and you do not have one yet. Secondly, if you have young children, we do have uh, coloring pages, cranes, things like that in the back uh, that if they're in service with you uh, and you would like to have that to uh, let them use uh, while we're here, please uh, utilize that so that uh, they can uh, enjoy the service uh, while we are here. But let's pick up. Where are we at? John chapter 11. Uh, if you remember last week, A man rose from the dead. Jesus calls Lazarus out of the grave, and it is a triumphal uh, moment. It is the final seventh sign of the book of John, revealing who this man Jesus is. As we should expect, the result of this event is there is a widespread belief that Jesus is the Messiah taking root in the Judean countryside and even in Jerusalem, Indeed, this is the beginning of the end in the book of John. And this little section serves as a transition period between Jesus' public ministry, meaning all the work that he did in the countryside and through the villages, signs, miracles, teaching and what is going to be his ultimate ministry, which is his death on the cross, which is about to come in a week's time here uh, from this point forward. There's two points this morning that we will see uh, in this text from 1145 to 1219. The first is this, God uses the selfish motives of his enemies to accomplish his good. God will use the selfish motives of his enemies to accomplish his good, and the second thing we will see is God's servants are called to a life of humble service. God's servants are called to a life of humble service. But let's dive into John chapter 11 and read it together this morning. John 11, starting at verse 45, and we will read through verse 54. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man has performed many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, uh, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. "'Nor do you understand that it is better for you "'that one man should die for the people, "'not that the whole nation should perish.' "'He did not say this on his own accord, "'but being the high priest that year, "'he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, "'and not for that nation only, "'but also to gather into one the children of God "'who are scattered abroad. "'So from that day they made plans to put him to death. "'Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews,' but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us this scripture, this uh, story of the Savior, as he is making his final preparations, as his public ministry and work amongst the villages and the nations of Israel uh, have has come to a close and he sets his eyes and his heart on that cross uh, for which he will march into Jerusalem to take up. Lord, we pray that uh, as we see this passage as we see the work of the savior and the work of the enemies of God, Lord that our hearts wouldn't be afflicted but we would see the great glorious uh, glorious truth that we have here. Lord that you are in control of all things, that even as your enemies plot disaster you are using them to accomplish your great good. And Lord, let us have great peace and f- uh, freedom from anxiety as a result. Lord, we pray that these words would settle into our hearts and minds, that our, our uh, beings would be focused on you, that we wouldn't be drawn away to the things of this world, but would instead find our hope and satisfaction in the Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would do this this morning as we open your word and have it read to us and see the things that you have to teach us. Lord, we ask that the Holy Spirit would be at work to make this happen. In your name we pray, amen. And so as these people are starting to believe in the Messiah as Lazarus is walking around in the village of Bethany, gone is the hopelessness that we experienced in the beginning of chapter 11. With Mary, Martha, all of the mourners, if you were here last week, there was a sense of hopelessness. They are now filled with great hope, and in turn... The hopelessness has moved to the religious authorities. And in the beginning and the end of this section, we see these religious authorities struggling with a truth, with a great truth. What is that truth? That no matter what, people are going to continue to believe in Jesus. He is unstoppable. In fact, they end the whole section with seeing, the world has gone to him. Everybody is placing their faith in this man. That's not really the issue, though, we quickly see. They don't really care if people believe in Jesus or don't believe in Jesus. It's what that will mean to them that they are concerned about. How do we get there? Look at verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Got to remember what these people think of with the Messiah. It's not what we think of Jesus on the cross, the Messiah, which is the true version, the full reality of what Jesus is. To them, when they see Jesus as the Messiah and they have come to believe that he is the Messiah, they believe the Messiah is going to deliver decisive military victory for Israel. This will mean certain war with Rome. And so when this council gathers together and everybody is believing that Jesus is the Messiah, the issue at hand is if he's really the Messiah, war is around the corner and Rome is going to wipe us out. And they show two things here. One, they don't really believe that God is going to protect and keep his people, that the Messiah isn't actually more powerful than Rome. And two, they are pretty content to live under Roman occupation. They don't really want things to change. The religious leaders who should be most focused on serving God, most excited about the arrival of the Messiah, are actually most concerned not about the Messiah's uh, arrival, but their ability to maintain power and influence amongst the people of Israel. If people start following this man, if he truly is the Messiah, Rome's not going to put up with that. We're all going to be wiped out. We are going to lose our place. And in fact, Israel is going to lose its heritage. We don't want the Messiah. We kind of like things the way that they are. What should have been a great celebration of the arrival of their Messiah is seen as a personal affront and a possible challenge to their status quo. They would rather keep things like they are than risk any true change. How are they going to do this? How will they stop the advance of Jesus as this council is gathered together? Will Caiaphas, who's the high priest, the leader of this council, as they're all sitting there having this discussion, what are we going to do about this man Jesus? says in verse 49 into verse 50, you guys don't know anything. This is our easy solution. I have I have it all under control. You should understand that it's better for one man to die than for us to lose our entire nation. All we have to do is kill him and this thing will stop. Our nation will be preserved, our own heritage as Israelites. We won't have to worry about Rome coming in and taking away some of the autonomy that we have, our ability to uh, have the prestige in our class as these council and high priests will be preserved. Everything will be able to stay where it's at if we just kill this man, Jesus. It's better for one man to die than for us to lose our whole nation, therefore The right godly solution, according to this council, is to simply kill this man. But John points something fabulous out here. In verse 51, John says, He didn't say this of his own accord, but being the high priest, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into the children of God who are scattered abroad. This is where we see that first point just screaming at us from the text. God uses the selfish ambitions of his enemies to accomplish his good. John recognizes it immediately. This man says it's better for Jesus to die than for the whole nation to perish, thinking that he's going to kill Jesus, preserve his standing, save the people of Israel, and life can continue on as they know it. It's his evil, wicked plan for his own profit, But John points out something great here. This man is not lying. In fact, this might be one of the truest statements this high priest has said in quite some time. That this man, Jesus, it would be better if he were to die so that the whole nation could be saved. He has an evil plot but God means his evil plot for his ultimate good. We've used the word recapitulation before. And it's a big word, and what this word means, it's the second version of something. And here at the end of John chapter 11, we have this second version of somebody, the second version of a man named Joseph. Joseph is this great uh, figure in the book of Genesis. Genesis. The end of Genesis is centered around the life of Joseph, and if you don't know the story of Joseph, you have a great opportunity, if you're a man of CBC, to join the men's Genesis study as they work through the rest of the book of Genesis uh, this semester. But if you're not familiar, I'll give you a quick rundown. There's this kid, Joseph. He kind of is in a weird family situation. His dad ends up with more than one wife. He's kind of tricked into this, Uh, and it's a less than ideal situation. Uh, his dad loves his mom, Joseph's mom, but Joseph's mom can't have any kids. And so he ends up with a lot of older brothers uh, as God has blessed his other mom and other people that have brought family into the life of this man named Jacob. And finally, Joseph's mom gets pregnant and Joseph is born. It's this great celebration, but we quickly see who daddy's favorite is. Right, He has all kinds of special privileges because he is the son of the wife he loves the most. And, and to make matters worse, his dad gives him this nice, bright coat that just screams, Daddy likes me more than you. Uh, and so his brothers can't help but look at it and be reminded that I am dad's favorite. But to make matters worth, worse, Joseph has these visions of himself that he can't help but share with his brothers. So he wakes up and he's like, Guys, you, wouldn't under, you would not believe the dream I had. You were all worshiping me. They don't like him already, and so they kind of get a little angry at this, and he goes to sleep, and he says, the next day or whenever this other vision comes up, I had another vision. You guys were worshiping me, and mom and dad were worshiping me. Everybody's worshiping me. The brothers don't like this, and so they need to do a solution. We've got to get rid of this guy Joseph. Dad likes him more. He has these visions. He's really annoying. Uh, clearly, he's going to get all the best of stuff, and we're going to be left with the scraps, and so we're going to get rid of him. They debate whether we should kill him or not, and finally they settle on selling him to a traveling merchant as a slave, where he gets transported to Egypt. Joseph spends some time in Egypt, uh, living there under a whole bunch of different circumstances uh, that is continuing to suffer, Uh, and we see as the story unfolds that Joseph is often the victim of other evil people's deeds and desires. But through all of this, God is bringing Joseph to a place where eventually he is going to end up essentially in command of Egypt. There's the Pharaoh, but the Pharaoh has delegated all power and authority to this man Joseph because this man Joseph has these visions and this walk with God that will allow him to preserve and help the people of Egypt. He helps them plan, he oversees the people of Egypt, they store all this food, there's a great famine, and Egypt's power grows immensely. But even more than that, as part of all these nations who are coming that are starving in this time, there comes this little band of people uh, from the countryside. What is this band of people? Well, it's Joseph's brothers. And they show up thinking, my brother's probably dead. We sold him as a slave, only to realize, uh uh-oh, this is my brother who I sold into slavery and now he alone controls whether I get food or I die. Well, Joseph displays great forgiveness, love, all kinds of wonderful things to his brothers, uh, and they are restored. He brings the whole family there. He provides for the family. All is good. In Genesis chapter 50, uh, Joseph's father, Jacob, who becomes known as Israel, dies, and the brothers begin to panic again. Okay, maybe he only kept us alive while dad was here, but now that dad's dead and he's not going to make dad mad by killing us all, he's going to kill us for sure now. And so they come to Joseph and they plead their case. And Joseph has this wonderful phrase. In fact, I think one of the richest phrase is, uh, phrases and verses in all of the book of Genesis, maybe the Old Testament. He says this, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive. This is that same thread that we're pulling on in, in John chapter 11. That it is better. For the nation, and indeed all of the nations, that one man should die rather than they all perish. These people mean it for evil. God means it for good. He has brought his Savior to pay the price. Colossians 1.19 says it this way. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the beautiful work of Jesus. He dies that the nation might live and indeed that we might live. One man dying for the sake of many that he might collect them and call him their own. But if God uses the selfish ambitions of enemies to accomplish his good, what does that mean for us then? Well, I think it means first and foremost, we should realize that we are called to live a life free of anxiety. Now this is a hard thing. But if God uses even the murderous plots of his enemies to accomplish his good, why should we submit to chains of anxiety in our life? Our focus should simply be in asking, God, what are you calling me to be obedient to today? What ways do I need to trust you and be obedient in this moment knowing that all these things are under control, even the work of enemies you are using to bring about your good. We have to realize we can't control the people who are opposed to God. We don't have the ability to do that. But they also cannot stop God. And so we should be called to find peace and courage to be faithful, even at the potential of personal cost, knowing that God uses even evil plots of his enemies to deliver his people. We live in a very anxious time, though. Just this week, my newsfeed was littered with articles with headlines such as this, Canada outlaws Christianity, screaming, what does this mean for America? Are we next? Is Christianity going to be illegal? Why did they have these articles come out? Because Canada passed a speech law that outlawed uh, conversion therapy. And what conversion therapy means is you are not allowed to tell somebody the biblical view that homosexuality is a sin. If you say that you need to convert from this lifestyle to this lifestyle, this is what God has called you to. You could be potentially thrown in prison in the country of Canada. And so over and over this week, my news, all the news articles, blogs, things like that that I get sent to my inbox and different websites I read have this headline. And what is the result? There's this panic among all these Christian leaders freaking out. Uh, We're gonna be killed, we're gonna be imprisoned, everything's over, life is lost. There's a level of anxiety that induces comment after comment and story after story in response to events like this. And this is just one thing this week. If we're being honest, we see similar headlines all the time. The end of America as we know it. The end of Christianity as we know it. The end of being a parent as we know it. Uh, Over and over, we are told to be anxious and be in a state of perpetual panic because of society around us. But here in John chapter 11, we are faced with a great truth that breaks the chains and powers of all of that. God uses the plots of his enemies for his good. And if God is truly in control, we have nothing to be anxious about. And so if you find yourself despairing, getting wrapped up in anxiety, take a deep breath. And simply just say, God is in control. John 11:51. 51. He's using the murderous and evil plots of his enemies to accomplish his ultimate good. How much more can he use whatever we face today? But let's move to chapter 12. Verses 1 through 19. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom, uh, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, "Why uh, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, Not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came. Not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. But the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees, and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey, and he sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that we are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Weeks, maybe even months have gone by since the decision of the council to put Jesus to death. But now this time has come, his ministry is closing, and he turns to his final great work. He sets out from the countryside and arrives in the town of Bethany, the town that he had previously raised this man, Lazarus. And I, would, and I would say that quickly there's a remarkable closure here in the book of John that helps us know that there's a transition and an attentiveness that's going to change here. The beginning of, of Jesus' ministry in the book of John starts with this wedding feast. It's a large celebration. Jesus turns water to wine. And now the very end of his public ministry is going to be closed by another feast, a feast in his honor, a dinner with his closest friend's Uh, in this town of Bethany. But this town, unlike the great anticipation that a wedding brings, what the future might hold, we love to dream about this young couple and all the great things that they might do. This feast at the end of John chapter 11 and into John chapter 12 has a dark cloud over it. Jesus knows his death is looming. He must give way and the mood has shifted instead of this time of what this man might do we now know what he is going to do and it's heavy and as they are sitting there and they have this dinner and they're celebrating and talking uh mary does something She cracks open this bottle of perfume that immediately the whole room begins to smell. If you have young teenagers, or some of you can remember back to your teenage years, this is like the annoying kid who sprays Axe body spray everywhere, right? Immediately, like one little, and the whole room is overwhelmed by this scent. Uh, Everybody's eyes are like, where did this smell come from? What is happening? Mary is beginning to anoint this man, Jesus, And everybody's probably looking and going, this is a little weird. Why is she doing these things? It's quickly met with rebuke by a disciple, the one that we're told is Judas, who says, Mary, what are you doing? You should have sold that and given the money to the poor people. And then John quickly says, this guy doesn't actually care about the poor. He's just a thief and was stealing money to himself. He's probably looking at that expensive perfume thinking what nice things he might buy for himself if he has just a slice of the cost of that perfume that he can help himself to. But Jesus will have none of this, and he rebukes Judas and notes the importance of the event as he is preparing himself for the cross and the grave. She is anointing me for burial. She is doing a great and wonderful deed here. But there's even more at play when we start to understand culturally what is happening. A woman unbinding her hair, a woman letting her hair down that's not tied up, was seen as something unseemly. It would have brought great shame to Mary and would have been a terrible thing for her in society for people to see her with her hair down. And yet she lets her hair down and indeed uses her hair to clean the feet of this man, Jesus. And we see Mary here is moved by the deepest feelings of loyalty to Jesus. She will honor Jesus, she will serve Jesus regardless of social disapproval. The effect on this atmosphere is immediate. It's not just the scent, it's the scene as this whole house is filled with the fragrance and the sight of, of this woman humbly wiping the Savior's feet. And we see the second point that we'll see here, and even with the triumphal entry, God's servants are called to a lifetime or a life of humble service. God's servants are called to a life of humble service. Mary is willing to bear social disapproval because of her loyalty and dedication to Jesus. She doesn't care what even her closest friends think of her in regards to this event. She will serve the savior. We too often are overwhelmed by societal pressures, and I'm not just saying outwardly, but even inwardly, that inside of the church culture, there's certain standards and things that we have to do, and so we are overwhelmed by, by pressure to behave or act a certain way. Some of that is good, uh, but oftentimes, some of that is heightening these pressures to not serve God or, or worship God or to love God as we should. Our loyalty, first and foremost, is to Jesus. And if you want a great scene of this, go to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6 is this beautiful scene when the king of Israel, David, is celebrating as the Ark of the Covenant, God's, which symbolized God's presence among his people, is brought into the city. He's dancing ferociously, not caring what anybody thinks about him as he kind of looks like probably an idiot as he's dancing in the sea. I look when I dance, Um, but again, I don't really care. I just like to dance and and enjoy things, dancing with my kids. David is dancing. His wife gets so angry, and she says, you're the king. It is beneath you to act in such a way, and he rebukes her and says, I will become undignified. I will be made worthless in your sight if that's what it means, in order to praise my great God. Nothing will stop me from celebrating and giving my God the honor. We should not care what everyone around us thinks. We should worship the Lord. Right? And this has implications even in the way that we worship. Right? There's, you have these different tiers of people, and they're comfortable doing different things as we sing. Some people do this, some people do this. Some people do this, and they're hitting the people next to them, and you know, people are leading the way, right? There's all these societal pressures, and we feel, and we, if you're being honest, we start to look around and say, what is everybody else doing? Should I clap here? Should I not clap here? Right? This story reminds us, worship the Lord. He is moving in our lives, and we should respond with great praise and adoration, not worrying about what is happening around us. We should worship our great Savior. But the story moves, and we start to see these enemies beginning to take place again. As the crowds are gathering, as Mary is in this house anointing the Savior's feet, the enemies of God realize that there is nothing that they can do to stop Jesus. And even worse, if they are going to try to stop Jesus, they've got to kill this Lazarus guy too. What had started with it's better for one man to die is now it's better for two men to die uh, if we're going to preserve Israel. And we see the slippery slope of sin very momentarily. Once we give in the first time, the second, third, fourth time become easier and easier and easier. The high priest had said it's better for one man to die, but now it's changed to it's better for two men to die. And it won't stop there. Just a few months later, we'll get to Stephen in the book of Acts, and it's better for three men to die. And then James, it's better for four men to die. And on and on until the Jewish uh, leaders here first led by a man named Saul and later by other people, are actively hunting and killing the people who proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah. They will stop at nothing to squelch this. It starts with, it's better for one, but if we give in to the expediency and the the ease of stopping, it's just one thing and then all this will be better. It's so easy for us to snowball into the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth thing. Indeed, these are the true words of John 8, 34, when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And these religious leaders will stop at nothing. And we should be reminded that in our own lives, we should fight ferociously against sin. And it's so easy to let little sins in, right? I think of my own personal life, and I won't condemn any of you guys. You do, you know, you can condemn yourself for the actions you do, but this is a perfect example. My daughter, Hadley, she's five years old, come up to me. Daddy, come play with me. No, I'm busy. That's not true. I'm watching basketball. <laughs> right? Like the, re- the real answer is, no, I don't want to. Uh, but I lie. Why? Because it's easy. And then I have this, like, okay, my daughter, I'm lying to her. And then how much easier is it to begin to lie about other things? Right? And this is just one small area in my life that I can think of a practical example that we capitulate because it's easy that we give in to sin to preserve the status quo to make things easy to to live in this comfort rather than stepping out into discomfort by being honest or being faithful in different areas and there's this subtle reminder that we should keep fighting to let this even small temptation to ease up and let sin into our lives the call to humility says i don't care what I lose, whether it's personal security, whether it's societal standing, whether it's even economic security. My hope is in Jesus, and I will live and serve like that's true. But as this feast finishes, we are drawn to this great entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. If you remember back a few chapters, there was a previous feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus had come a few days late and silently enters the city. He knows that now is the time that I am going to loudly enter. The time for my public arrival to the city of God is here. And he does this. He arrives. The word has continued to spread like a wildfire since he has uh, resurrected this man, Lazarus. Everybody is excited. The Messiah, the great deliverer, deliverer of Israel is here. Freedom is certainly at hand. There's an intense amount of nationalistic hope for the people of Israel that Jesus might finally restore them to the glorious nation that they once were. And indeed he shall, but not in the way that they truly desire. He is the king of Israel, but not like Judas Maccabeus, who a few centuries earlier had entered the city on a war horse, nor like Solomon, who had done the same in 1 Kings 4. Rather, he is the king whom the prophet Zechariah prophesied, saying he comes lowly and riding on a donkey. Zechariah 9, 9 and 10 is what he's quoting here. If you have time this week, read it. But What is Zechariah prophesying? That this Messiah, the one who comes, he will take away the chariots and the war horses from Jerusalem, the one whom the battle bow will be broken. He is the one who will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus deliberately demilitarizes the vision of the Messiah that these people have when he comes riding into town on a lowly donkey. He is thus declaring the nature of his messianic rule. It's not going to be one of war, but it's going to be a rule of peace and gentleness. And it's not just the followers of Christ that we see, like Mary, who are called to live lives of humility we see indeed even the savior exemplifies humility and we are to follow in the footsteps of Jesus being humble and humbly serving In a day when we are used to hearing fighting words and constantly being told we need to prepare for battle we should remember this image Jesus enters the city not on a horse prepared for war but on a donkey promising peace There might be times when we do have to defend ourselves and stick up for our faith, but the message that we proclaim is not one of war, but one of peace. This is the gospel. Jesus has come to seek and save the lost. He has come to bring peace to the nations, not conflict. His ways are mercy, gentleness, and forgiveness. The fruit he produces is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And so we must ask ourselves, do we take an attitude of war with the world or do we take a message of peace, an offer of reconciliation to those that are the enemies of God? What is our attitude towards them? We should be reminded that the path to the cross, the path to victory is on a humble donkey, not a horse built for war. The victory is found on that cross and so we are invited As Jesus marches into town on this lowly donkey to see Jesus marching towards his certain death, one that willingly goes to his death for he knows it's better for one to die to save the many. And we are invited this morning to receive the salvation that he offers if we have not yet. And we are reminded to follow in his example as we seek to bring the lost to the Savior. And this section ends right where it starts. When confronted with the power of Jesus, his enemies realize they have nothing. They can do nothing to stop his influence. They can do nothing to stop the people from turning to the Messiah. This should serve as a reminder to us as we look at Jesus, as we look at the church. What can stop this man? What can stop the church? The answer, nothing. Nothing can stop the church because we have the God who commands the armies of angels, who is at work who will use even the plots, the murderous plots of his enemies to accomplish his good work. He rules the land and the sea, things seen and things unseen. Nothing and no one can stop him. And so a few questions as we finish this morning. One, are you settling for the status quo rather than the fullness of Jesus in your life? A good test of this might be to answer a question like so. Are you more concerned about preserving your life as it currently is, or are you more concerned about reaching those who don't know about Jesus? Are you more concerned about keeping your current comfort levels, the current things that you have, the friends that you hang out with, all of these things, or are you more concerned about the lost who need to hear of the Savior? You might be settling for the status quo if you are not actively seeing the need to preach the gospel to the nations. Two, What areas of your life are you most tempted to give into anxiety? And then how can you in these areas begin to put your anxiety at rest rest, knowing that God uses even the plans of his enemies for his good? Third, is your humility evidenced by service? How might you be a humble servant of Christ? And finally, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal savior? If you've not come to him, confessed your need for him in in your life, accepted him as your savior. You're invited as we see the savior coming in on the donkey, marching to the path to the cross to know that this man comes to die, that he might save the many and he might save us. Have you accepted him as your personal savior? And if you haven't, you're invited to do so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a good God who uses even your enemies and their plots, their actions, their deliberations to bring about your ultimate good for your people. Father, we thank you that in your goodness you counted it as wise, that you might send your son Jesus to die, one man in the place of many, that we might be reconciled to you that we might find our hope and indeed even our salvation in you. Father, we thank you. We know that we don't deserve such a great mercy, but you have granted it to us through the name and person and work of Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that if we are giving in to anxiety, if we are making way for subtle sins to enter into our lives, that in the name of Jesus and in what he has done and in the powerful work of God in utilizing even enemies, that we would not give in to anxiety, that we would not give in to little sins to preserve comfort or friction in our lives, but we would be willing to always fight, to always fight to eradicate sin, to live the lives that you call us to live. Father, might you be at work in our lives to make us holy and acceptable and pleasing to you. Might the gift of Jesus' death, his righteousness, be counted to us, and might we live like it is. Father, thank you for the love and mercy and grace and death of Jesus. Thank you for the hope that it provides us, and we rest in that hope this morning. Amen.